Books can reveal truths about the world around us. This can be subtle, an emotional gut punch, or anywhere between. And if they involve a con artist thrust into a magical city of gin, all the better. Welcome to The Fantasy End, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author S.A. Chakraborty. Her debut fantasy series, The Devabod Trilogy, will conclude next week with The Empire of Gold. Shannon and I discuss the upcoming Devabod Netflix adaptation, how history can be like angry Yelp reviews, and how stories can be a mirror in which we can find hope and understanding. And now, on to the interview. Let's hear what Shannon had to say. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Shannon. It's such a delight to have you here today. Thank you. So I guess I want to start off with, I know this is sort of the big recent news other than your book launch. So just what was your reaction to hearing that the David Bad trilogy would be coming out to Netflix? Uh, mostly shock. Um, it's funny because it came out and when the news came out, I had known they were in negotiations for over a year and my agent was hopeful and it seemed to be going places, but I'm not, you know, I guess I'm sort of a cynical person and I just assumed it was going to fall apart. You know, I'm, not, I'm just like, I keep my expectations sort on the floor. And then when thing, good things happen, it's so, it's, oh, that's nice. So, you know, I hadn't really heard anything and I wasn't expecting much. And then the Monday, of that week, my agent called me and was like, oh, we're going to be announcing that this week. And I was in shock. I was actually outside and, and walked into a water sprinkler because I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so I'm excited. Um, you know, I have a lot of conflicting feelings. It's a very like emotional time right now, just in, in terms of how I'm feeling about finishing out the series. I throw in news of Netflix and I think my brain just sort of short circuited. It was like, I can't actually contemplate that right now, especially it's one of those weird things where they tell you, okay, it's been options. So that's the first step in about 99 steps. And at any point, anything can go wrong. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm excited. I'm a little nervous. I'm just trying to, you know, let myself enjoy, you know, some of the reader reaction. And if it goes to that next step, I'll, you know, I'll have more news and I'll be able to share more, but I'm excited. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one thing that I hear with pretty much any kind of TV optioning is nothing's ever really certain until it's like actually out and in the world. Yeah, yes. Uh, but it seems like this this is a little more firm than the 100 something series a year. I feel like you hear like, oh, this has been picked up the rights by this person. So it's definitely an exciting time. That was the impression I got as well, because it wasn't just that the rights had been picked up necessarily by like a production company. It was a production company with already having, you know, the place that they would air and, and, and produce and show and everything. So I, I think it's like two steps instead of just one, but right, right. it seems hopeful. I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, so if the show does move forward, uh, I know you've said before that you're going to be fairly involved with it. So what are the most important things to you for the show to get right? Uh, first and foremost would just be representation in terms of the actors, in terms of the world. I, I think part of the reason I never expected it to go through is because I looked out at the landscape of TV and film and I was nothing, nothing inspired me to think, oh, yes, we'll get a big budget, you know, Islamic fantasy series where all the actors of people are people of color. You know, that just that's. That doesn't seem to be the landscape of how media is right now. And the reason I wanted to be involved was to make sure that I could, could get that as right as possible and as much as it is in my power that, to do. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I guess getting more into the interview proper now, first question I always like to ask people is, how did you fall in love with fantasy and why did you want to become a writer? So I am actually a bit of a latecomer to both fantasy and writing. Growing up, you know, I was always into myths and folklore, but I, I read a lot more science fiction and, and watched science fiction and, and was really into those sorts of worlds. You know, I when I was a kid, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the Harry Potter generation, which unfortunately is a <laughs> depressing thing to say nowadays. Yeah. Um, <laughs> since we can, I, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, proper fantasy, if you think of the epic fantasy, even the things I kind of write. Oddly enough, it wasn't something I really picked up until I was in college. And writing it was something even later. I mean, when I was in high school, I had dabbled in a little fan fiction. Uh, a friend of mine and, and a, a friend and I would write Harry Potter and Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan fiction and put it up. It was fanfiction.net. That's what we had in those days. Uh, but it wasn't anything real. I didn't take any creative writing classes in college. Um, I was going for a very different future. And it was only really when sort of the recession hit and my career plans and life plans sort of plummeted, I had begun, and this kind of gets into our next question even about how the what happened with the book series, I started just writing these little short stories set in sort of an alternative medieval world and with some of the folklore and histories and personalities and places that I had been studying in college and just came up with this little magical alternative world. And that was my writing experience and sort of what I started teaching myself. So I didn't really necessarily want to become a writer right away. I didn't really think that was a job that was open to people like me. Um, and you know, I fortunately had people who supported me and pushed me, my husband and eventually my writer's group. But, you know, what I said even earlier about having my expectations at the floor, I didn't really allow myself to think that it could happen um, <laughs> until about I, when I saw my book in Barnes and Nobles and I was like, oh, OK, I guess this is real now. You're a writer. Yeah, I, I can imagine that's just this surreal experience to see like your book finally on like a physical bookshelf in front of you in the store. Yes, absolutely. Because I was, even if I came to fantasy a little late, I was always a reader. And, you know, just from the time I was little, just going to the library and to the bookstore and all these places. And it was just the most surreal moment to finally see my book out in the world at on the shelves that I had spent, you know, a lifetime plucking through. So I think it's fascinating to me that you say you started out writing just sort of short stories in this world that you were building. You didn't necessarily have an overarching story in mind at the time. So how did you make that transition from just disjointed separate stories to being like this cohesive, eventually what became the City of Brass? Very slowly and strangely. And I think it's kind of hard for me to pick up on exactly when, um, you know, I was, it was something I was doing when I was working in a medical office for four years. And then when my, my, when I was got married and I was pregnant, my daughter was, was born and it was, you know, I kind of started playing with the world. And when I was playing with the politics and that aspect, you know, I'm not sure how much I can spoil in this, but coming up with this grand overarching civil war between the Nahids and the Gezeris and okay, what would those factions look like and what would happen later? It was, it was kind of diving into the politics that all of a sudden I was, I was like, oh, what if you had somebody from, you know, this, this family that had fallen years ago and she, she was also partially Shafit, which was the reason of the war and kind of thinking about Nahri's character, you know, like I said, I was working in medicine at the time and I wanted, you know, I wanted to play with elements of the con artists and the trickster, but also doctors and physicians. And when I kind of started imagining her and writing her, 
the a lot of it just kind of fell into place about trying to find these, you know, characters and archetypes from each of the warring groups and the families. Um, at that point, I, you know, I had been introduced to Game of Thrones and I kind of had a little <laughs> bit of a blueprint. I was like, oh, this is what a fantasy book is supposed to look like. Um, and ironically enough, because I thought, oh, okay, this is what a fantasy book is supposed to look like. My original drafts, when it started becoming a story, had like 20 different character point of views. Oh, wow. Um, that all got cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was kind of, you know, looking at, at what was out there and being like, okay, I guess I'm supposed to write that yeah well i guess now that we started talking about it some if you had to give like a brief pitch for the series what would it be i think i my my elevator pitch was always you know and uh napoleonic cairo you know this this character is is trying to to survive until a a con gone wrong summons an angry jinn um but i don't think that really gets into it. it you know the david bod trilogy is meant to be this alternative magical world that in many ways mirrors sort of the struggles and power issues of our own um and i wanted a world that talked about people who learn to fight for a better world and for justice in a system that seems designed to crush them and one in which they will never be able to beat and kind of look at the ways that that really works magic or not. Yeah, I I would say that's definitely pretty accurate from my experience with the series. Well, so I I know you said in multiple interviews before that this all sort of started out as historical fan fiction of a sort. I love that phrase, by the way. I think that's great, historical fan fiction. Um, But so obviously you're fairly knowledgeable about the history and the culture of the world. Do you have any favorite pieces of medieval Islamic history or folklore that not many people maybe know about? I do. I think my favorite piece of the medieval world, and one I don't think gets discussed enough, is the we, there's this idea of Rihla, and it is a travel narrative. And it was written at the time... It's basically the idea, you know, there's this idea in in Islam that you are supposed to travel in search of knowledge. You go where you can find things. In some of these periods, you weren't really considered a good scholar or a teacher or a learned person unless you had gone out into the world and seen places and learned from other scholars in other cities. And I find them fascinating. Um, The best known, and this will probably, you know, for people who aren't familiar, is of course Ibn Battuta. Um, But he's not the only one. We have Ibn Zubair and al-Sarafi and Ibn Fadlan. And the actual narratives themselves are fascinating. You know, you write them for the purpose of describing places and personalities and histories. And they are just so rich in scope and world. They paint a picture of just this incredibly diverse cosmopolitan society. And I think when people think of the medieval world, that's not what they think of. They're sort of thinking of of serfs out in a feudal system. And of course, you can't say necessarily that systems like that didn't exist. They did. But the medieval Islamic world was just incredibly connected. And it was a mostly urban world. I think people don't really realize that they sort of are thinking about deserts and Lawrence of Arabia nonsense. But it was it was a very urban world. It was a cosmopolitan world that these cities had diaspora populations and other populations that of different religions and different languages that had been there for 
millennium at that point. And I just, I love these stories. They're hysterical. I mean, so many of them, it's, it sounds like, you know, a lot of them, okay, yes, they, you know, you're like, you went, you went on Hajj and that was commendable and you learned, you, you stayed with this learned religious scholar, but a lot of them read as sort of angry Yelp reviews of, you know, I hate the sailors of the Arabian Sea. They have no manners and they have, you know, they're, they eat birds incorrectly. Or I went to this king and he gave me all this gold. These, his people are so fine and wonderful. Whereas his neighboring king was rude to me. And it's just, they're really, they just bring the past alive in a very human way um, that I just utterly adore. The whole concept of angry Yelp reviews of history is just something that, uh, I, I don't know, growing up, it was always, you know, memorize these dates or like these were the countries and nations that were around at this time. And you miss out on that personal connection. So I, I love that. You really do. And it's a shame because I think it it paints a picture of this very staid past. And it's not like that. People have always been people. And I think in sort of learning a more nuanced past and the way common people struggled, the way, uh, you know, not even just common people, but the, the clash of personalities with rulers, it makes it, it, you know, it can sometimes be a little difficult to to. I, you know, some, if, especially if you want to think of this very pure past, it can be a little bit difficult to wrap your mind around that. But I always felt like in sort of messing things up and embracing the mess of what, what history was kind of makes you a wiser person. Yeah. Well, so in, in your books, in the David Bad trilogy, the jinn are portrayed as sort of picking and choosing pieces of human culture to assimilate into their own, uh, even if they're a few centuries behind the times. I guess my question is, if the Jinn of Davidbad were to adopt pieces of culture from the modern world, what do you think those would be? I would love to see what they would do with social media. <laughs> <laughs> because you figure you have these gossipy 300-year-old creatures, and they would be like the grandparents of technology, where they'd be trying to get on the phone and like, why isn't this working? Or, you know, believing all of this, like, obviously, like, false nonsense or, you know, chain letters. You'd be like, oh, I guess I'm going to really die. Um, but I would love to see, you know, sort of the taking the gossipy politics of David Bod's world and sort of what that would be on, like, you know, what kind of person would Ali be on Twitter? <laughs> like, <laughs> or like, would, would Dara be like that person who believes all the, all the fake news and be like, no, they said it on the internet. It has to be true. Um, so I think that could be sort of a fun reimagining. Absolutely. I think uh, Muntadir would definitely be an Instagram influencer. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny because people have said that and, and have been like, I'm writing fan fiction about him being an Instagram influencer and I do completely <laughs> see it. One thing that sort of stands out from just the writing in your series, but you've also said this before, that you hate the idea of the one true love and you deliberately avoided like the stereotypical love triangle in the books. Uh, so I guess, can you elaborate a little on that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny because I've now said that enough times that I think my like my husband's going to be like, why do you keep talking about how much you hate love? Um, but it's <laughs> it's not really that I wanted to. And and this is comes with a huge caveat that I think the different aspects of romance and love and love triangles it's such an objective thing. And when what I say is not to tell readers that they can't enjoy aspects of this book or anything like that, especially we're in hard times, you read what you love. <laughs> um, but with 
with the Deva Bad trilogy, I wanted to look at romance in a different way. I first wanted to sort of decenter the idea of this all-consuming, passionate one love, which is, of course, a very valid idea. But especially in the world that I was writing about, one of the things I was struck when I was even reading, you know, medieval history was how common divorce was, particularly among middle class or more well-to-do families. It was sort of your birth family was your unit. And if you were having problems with your husband or you didn't want to live with him anymore or sort of issues arose between your family, you went back to your birth family. And that was just the way things were. And I wanted to look at that and just kind of have this idea that it was okay to open up and expand love and romance to encompass other things, friendships, uh, family love, and, and kind of talk about all the different ways you could have that with a person. And then when it came to my central character, I wanted to take Nahri and kind of look at the idea that romance and attraction and passion and, and sexuality and all of these things would interweave in her life over a period of several years. Not necessarily just, okay, you kissed someone once and now you're destined to be with them, but really give sort of the same nuanced, messy treatment that love often is in real life and give that to a character so that it was it's okay to investigate you know how it would feel to have your first crush how it would feel to navigate a political marriage how it might feel you know your first brush with with something near sex or near love or you know just the the messiness that that would cause in you i mean i don't i'm not sure how much i can spoil um in this interview in terms of all the books but nahri is a person who does not trust easily. She's had an incredibly difficult upbringing, um, one that has scarred her and, and traumatized her in ways that she's kind of investigating throughout the series. What would it mean for somebody like that to start having attraction or trust or trust someone and be betrayed just horribly and then see something even more horribly happen to this person and, and sort of the layers of how that would affect somebody's personality and how they would go in their journey of, of life and, and taking aspects of this and that it was okay to make romance and romance with more than one person and different kinds of love a normal part of her life that there was no never any moment where she was kind of like torn between two different men she she has other desires she wants to fix her city she wants to become a doctor and in that she kind of is like how how does that fit so you know who is supporting me who is helping me and kind of see how that would look in in terms of what she wanted for her romantic life yeah, I, I know. I really like how the concept of people can change over time and what they want at any given point in time can change. And I guess I, I would agree with you, like versus the whole one true love thing, it's more of free will and freedom of choice. So it's not like you have this great love for you destined that like, if that doesn't work out, you're screwed for the rest of your life kind of thing. So I do appreciate that. Exactly. Yes, exactly. You know, you have always wonders, especially this is epic fantasy. People die quite frequently <laughs> and you're going to live 300 years. What if your one true love dies when they're like 13? Um, so yeah, I just wanted, and that was another thing I was like with the lifespans of these creatures, you know, they would have different romances in their life. Yeah. Well, so another thing that is very noticeable, especially in books two and three, uh, you have some strong feelings about fantasy monarchies and maybe uh, a little bit destroying them. <laughs> Do you think? Um, yes. So I, and I think a lot of this, again, this goes to the idea of like, of reading being objection, uh, 
being an object, objective process. Um, and I think people should be able to enjoy what they want. But I also think, um, particularly in fantasy and not just fantasy, but in, in historical fiction as well, we elevate the idea of monarchy and the one true ruler and all of this nonsense. (laughs) Okay. It's not, or it's not nonsense. If that's what, what you want, that's fine. But I mean, look at the world we're living in. We want to talk about how there should only be one leader and, you know, this should be passed down. I I found that, I find that unrealistic. And with the Devabod trilogy, I really wanted to pull in the politics from our world and look at what happens with, you know, colonization and sort of this cycle of history and violence and what people are asked to give up in the name of security and really look at those issues. So I, I felt like it would be almost irresponsible Responsible to, to point to the idea that monarchy is a good idea. Monarchy is a terrible idea. You shouldn't be concentrating that much power in the hands of one person or one ruling family. And so I, I very much, you know, I always had the idea that if I was showing that, we were going to show all the problems with that and the ways that, you know, of course, that that hurts people and that just entrenches violence and and historical trauma. So I, yes, that is why you get the impression that monarchy should be destroyed in the book. <laughs> right. Uh, and I know uh, I recently had a chat with Rowena Miller from the World Building for Masochists podcast and something that uh, the whole podcast often talks about, and I know you were actually a guest on the podcast recently, um, is the whole concept of choosing versus presuming. Uh, and I feel like a lot of fantasy writers uh, just sort of presume that, okay, monarchy is the default that you do in fantasy. And there's a lot of kind of inbuilt assumptions in that. And if you're not challenging them at all, uh, you're kind of saying something that maybe you don't mean to say. Exactly. And I think it's even worth looking at the actual history of monarchies. They are an incredibly destabilizing system. I mean, you know, you want to talk about, you look at the medieval world, just look how much violence that provoked from, you know, from princely rivalries to people. I mean, you can't even say it's just a one part of the world. I mean, they are not a stable system in any way. Um, so I don't think it's something we should present in fantasy of, oh, this, this kingdom was 800 years old. There's no kingdoms that have lasted for 800 years years with sort of this one stable ruling family. And I, I, I think we should, you know, pull that apart a bit. Absolutely. And so something that I found kind of interesting was given how you feel about monarchies, uh, I was intrigued when you said that you were also interested in fictional and real royal families. Yes, because I've always been very interested in family drama and in sibling rivalries. I think there it's a fascinating thing to look at family relationships. And when you, you know, when you imbue that with real power of, you know, it's not just you have, you know, some issues being the only an only child or, you know, you're jealous of your elder, um, but all of a sudden you're a royal family and it's not just, oh, he was given better schooling than me or or you know, she had more opportunities. It's you've given the kingdom to this person and I have to go, you know live in a, in a military tower and sleep on the floor. Um, and it was just something I always found really fascinating. And even just looking through history, because, you know, it, it pulls at you when you read about things about civil wars between siblings and how it would tear families apart and what it would take, you know, people who would assassinate their parents or assassinate their children. And, you know, I, I, I come from a very close uh, extended family. And I guess I was just always, you know, troubled and disturbed, but also, you know, fascinated like what would drive you to something like that? Could you be driven for power so much that you would blind the brother you had grown up with, that you would arrange that you could murder your father? I mean, that I, I, it's, it's, it's horrifying, but it's also, you know, it's this drama and this compelling 
way to look at power and jealousy that I think is very fascinating, especially to explore in fiction where, you know, no one will actually be killed and you won't see family drama doom, you know, tens of thousands of innocent people. You know, now I'm curious. So given how things play out in the David Bad trilogy and how family relationships are, uh, has any of your family read these books and been like, mm, are you trying to say something? <laughs> I actually, I, when the books first came out, I gave one to my brother. I have a twin brother and we're very close. And I definitely took aspects of some of our relationship because when my, when my brother and I were growing up, he was very sick and I was so overprotective. It like embarrassed him at the time. Um, but I, I mean, I just remember I like, I got, I would get in fights, like if somebody looked at him wrong. So, you know, I, I, when I was writing Ali and Mutazir's relationship, it was, I wanted to kind of show that about this very overprotective sibling. Um, but so I knew he was going to recognize that. And I was like, I just want to let you know all of the bad parts that had nothing to do with us. Um, and so, so my family does read it. Um, my mom reads the book. She's actually been an early reader of mine since the beginning. And I, I, it was interesting because you can see a difference. She read book one and she really liked it, but she was also kind of like, so where are the mothers? <laughs> so I was like, you know what? Fair point. Um, and I definitely pulled in Hatset and Ali's relationship. I, I wanted to, again, pull in this sort of protective, loving mother. I think there's a big difference between how Hatset and Ghassan treat their children. And, you know, for, for the king at a certain point, you know, Devabad comes first. For Hatset, it never does. Um, she wants her children to, to, to rule and to be, to be strong, but because it's good for them and because she thinks it's good for the city. And I always wanted to have that sort of difference of she's, she's pushing Ali and Zainab to be the best versions of their self. But if push comes to shove, you know, he's getting whisked off to Tanichi to keep him safe. Whereas, you know, Ghassan wouldn't have done that. Right. And, you know, that is an interesting point, too, because fantasy in particular is a genre where mothers often don't really get, like, a good part of the story. You know, they're either killed off in backstory or killed off early on. So, yeah, you, you have mothers featured fairly prominently throughout the books and also uh, not just in one role. They have different roles, whether that's villain, hero or somewhere in between. I think it's the idea to, um, there, there's a phrase like, and I can't remember it at the point, but it's the idea that your parents have their own story that you may not be privy to. And, you know, growing up, you don't actually always think of, you know, they're your parents, they're your parents first. And it's difficult to kind of see them outside that and their own personality and their own history and their desires and their ambitions. And when I was writing these books, I wanted to make sure I could show a bit of that, that, you know, Hatset doesn't become just this trope of this, you know, protective mother. We find in the third book, you know, why she made the decisions that she did, some of the other elements of, of her life and her personality. So I did want to make sure that they were people. Um, they weren't just, you know, a father or a mother. Right. Uh, and so I guess kind of naturally following off of that, many of your characters are this mix of sympathetic and likable and also just a little bit monstrous. Uh, so People who are good seem to do terrible things. People who seem awful on the surface have these redeeming qualities that make you just want to like them. So how do you go about striking that balance? You know, I think it's a balance that is reflective of our world itself. I don't think many people who are 
villains consider themselves villains. So I wanted to to find a balance, but actually more important for me was to make sure that I was never justifying anything um, so that we would see the descent into somebody like Adara, you know, kind of this idea of what makes a good man, an otherwise good man, do horrible, atrocious things and keep doing them and the ways he would justify them to himself, to others, and truly believe that. And to do that and show that without making it ever, making the readers ever think, well, okay, I get why he, you know, commanded the slaughter of a thousand innocents. So, you know, you can strike that balance, but I think it's even just having characters play off of each other um, that, you know, he, he can be trying to justify it, but we can see through the thoughts of other characters and the arguments of other characters that it's trying and sort of failing that it's, it, this is not a, this is not a good thing or showing the way people take different paths. Um, I had another interview recently and it was, it was interesting because it started out asking if I thought the way Menezo was brought up, essentially being oppressed and suffering had lessened her accountability for what she does in these books. And I said, no, I think you can find tragedy in the what ifs of if this person didn't go down this bad path, but you can also look at people who have suffered just as much and haven't done that. They've found a way to rise, to keep fighting and just kind of even look at the way, you know, it was important for me. A lot of these books focus on the actions of sort of the nobility, but I wanted to make sure we didn't lose sight of what those actions did to the common people. So you can show it in that way too, if you're striking a balance, you know, you see their actions and you see just the awful ways it plays out to the people they're supposedly trying to save and protect. And I I think there's a difference between the ability to sympathize or empathize with the character and also uh, the whole accountability. Uh, Because I know like, I've definitely forgiven characters for doing some pretty uh, awful stuff before just because, like, they're really likable. Like, I like them. I sympathize with them. Uh, but that that's not really uh, how things should be. No, and I think it's okay to, to struggle. You know, I, I I often say, and will admit, with, with Dara in particular, I wanted to see how far I could stretch reader sympathies, whereas people would love him and they would just be screaming at the books, being like, I want to like you, I want to support you, I, I but you, you've done this. And to, sh- to see how you can stretch that and can it come back and just, you know, to really kind of mess with people, because I think... In, in investigating that in fiction, it's maybe something that teaches you to investigate that in your own life and society a bit, which I think is always a worthy goal of uh, trying to attempt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'd say uh, you'd manage to make Dara somewhat sympathetic given some of the uh, ships that I see around online. <laughs> yes. Well, so... Uh, this is actually a great segue, uh, talking about how things can be relevant in our own lives. So one of the central and unfortunately increasingly relevant themes of your series seems to be examining how people react under authoritarian rule. Why was this something important for you to explore in the books? It was important for me to explore in the books because I think that is essentially the defining struggle of our own period. You know, I had this book published in 2017, and I think people are increasingly feeling like the world is about to end. And if the forces of, you know, brutality and state violence can't be beaten, what do you do? And I think it's it's finding the strength to fight even when you don't see a victory in place or you don't see a victory that you may enjoy. It's, it's kind of this idea that 
it's not, you know, somebody rides in on a white horse and saves the day. That's not how justice is achieved in this world. It's very much a process of taking two steps forward and one step back. And it's de- it can be demoralizing. It can be dr- traumatic. Um, it can be incredibly hard. And there's times where you do fall and you have to pick yourself up or you fall and you never pick yourself up. And I wanted to really show just the toll that would take and the strength it would take, that these are characters who are beaten down. These are characters who have to examine their own roles and their own community's uh, responsibilities in violence and come to terms with that and and un- try to undo that damage. And really, I think... Um, if stories can be sort of a mirror of our world and you can find hope and inspiration in them. And, you know, it's, it's almost trivial to say like, Oh, I looked at this book and, you know, they kept fighting or I looked at this count and it gave me a a way to think about my own roles in supremacy or brutality. I think there's worth in that. I think it's good to find mirrors in fiction because I think it's sometimes easier to grasp that. And then once you have something like that, move on to finding that hope and that fight in your own life. Well said. And not to uh, provide too much tonal whiplash or anything, but <laughs> something I also love is I've seen you've talked about uh, like being passionate about cooking these historical recipes. Yes. Do you have any favorite recipes that you've made? I do. Um, there is this chicken dish, uh, which is now I think I have a recipe for it somewhere. Um, I did actually I put it in the book and it's essentially it's it's like roasted chicken and you roast it over of sort of savory bread pudding with um, stewed dates and apricots and, and broken up pieces of bread and rose water and, and all these spices. And it's just, it's it's delicious. I, I like to make it a lot. And it was something I got out of this book, Sense and Sensations, which is sort of, it's a 13th century Syrian uh, cookbook. Um, so I have, and I have other recipes as well. It was something I, especially last year, I kind of got into doing, um, just trying to recreate and see if I could. And it, it's very interesting because it's a different flavor profile than you would imagine. Um, you know, this is before the Colombian exchange and, you know, a lot of the the things we associate with like tomatoes and peppers and squashes, you know, they didn't have that. And it was, it's interesting to see the different flavor profiles of, oh, wow, this was so different. Or, but then looking at another dish, you're like, this is hummus, (laughs) you know, this is early, you know, hummus. And, you know, it's, it's, so I, I like to, to, to see that I like the historic aspect and then you can eat it. So there's really nowhere you can go wrong there. Absolutely. So I guess you mentioned uh, Sense and Sensation. Uh, Are there any other places that you go to, to find these recipes? Like I know I would have no idea where to even begin. Yeah, there's Sense and Sensations, which is out with the Library of Arabic Literature. Nawal Nasrallah, she does a lot on her website of recipe recreations and all sorts of different things, but she has a great book, which is um, a treasure trove of benefits and variety, a 14th century Egyptian cookbook. Um, It's giant, (laughs) but it's really great. And you can also find some recipes on our website. And there's also uh, Medieval Cuisine of the Islamic World, which kind of gives a little bit of history, modern recipes, and then older recipes. And you can even also just look online. There is there is a lot about culinary history. And it was a huge part of the of this world, especially for the nobility and, and, and for royals. There was, you know, great cooking competitions. And a lot of it was a carryover from, from pre-Islamic Persian customs. So because it was very much, you know, this noble thing, and, 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 you know, considered part of high culture, a lot of the recipes and books were preserved. Yeah. And what a fun way to do research for writing your own books as well. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. So looking forward a little bit, 
I know for the City of Brass especially, but I guess the entire David Bod trilogy, the whole world, you've been working on that for over a decade now. So how does it feel to be finally like coming to an end, to be finishing with this world that has been such a big part of your life for so long? Uh, it's mostly been an emotional mess, <laughs> <laughs> to be completely honest. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, it's, it's feels, it's very, See, I can't even come up with words. Um, it's very, you know, sad and somber. I, when I was finishing up with the, their last chapters, I mean, I just cried on every revision pass um, because it just made me so emotional. And it was so, it was both upsetting and freeing to think like, I won't write Nahri again. I won't write Ali again. I've given them their future and and now they're going. Um, so it was, it was, you know, very, it made me upset and sad, but it was also extremely you know, affirming that I was able to finish it. I had a very rough journey into writing just in times of finding time and, and putting pressure on myself. And, you know, I was an anxious mess. Um, you know, I did a lot of things in terms of just time management that were horrible for my health and ended up, um, with some bad health scares for myself. So I was, just happy to see that I could finish it and that I finished it the way that I wanted to, which was also important for me because when I was starting the third book, I, I felt very torn between what I had expected the series to be, you know, five years ago, between what I thought readers wanted and between the direction that I felt was right to end it. So just finishing it was, I felt very accomplished and ready to move on. I, I loved it. Um, I, I actually had written a whole bunch of stories and, and material that I posted on my website that of just that I wrote the past few months from different character points of view and everything that I think was my own sort of self-care of dealing with quarantine. But I do feel like I, I want to move on. Like I wouldn't mind returning one day, but I, I feel very proud of the work that I've done. Um, I'm incredibly grateful to the readers who've, who have gravitated towards the series. And I'm just glad I was able to finish it and put it out there for them and kind of let them have it now. Absolutely. Speaking of moving on to the next thing, you've mentioned like little bits of tidbits here and there, uh, but is there anything you can tell us about your next project? I can. And actually, interestingly enough, it pulls from a couple of the things we discussed today. I'm writing a trilogy set in the uh, 13th century Indian Ocean world. And it's pulling from a lot of the travelogues that I wanted to work with because I wanted to kind of take a step back from, you know, the scholars and the fancy people who rode, rode these boats to all of these places in the world and look at the people who actually crewed them. And, you know, the pirates and, and the con artists and the tricksters and the hucksters who they, you know, rip apart in their travelogues. And, you know, a lot of it, a lot of these, these, these travelogues and these these books are, you know, these, these haughty looks at, oh, there's this place is full of thieves and this place is full of pirates. You know, I thought about this trilogy as, all right, it's time the thieves and the pirates have their say. Um, so I wanted to look at that and have it, have it be a bit more of an adventure tale than the Devabod trilogy, that it's about, you know, treasure hunting and fortune and magic and, and the human perspective, not, not, not the gin at the same time. We're now taking a step back and looking at the humans who are getting pulled into all of these things. Um, and I also, I wanted to write about mothers and, and women. Um, you, my main character is, is a woman essentially dealing with the ultimate terms of mothers, you know, working mother's guilt that she, you know, she has her daughter at home and she finds herself pulled to going back to this life and going, 
going back to this adventure and the way that you can, you can find a way to be, you know, an older female protagonist. That's something we don't often get to see, um, who's dealing with, you know, your aching hip and your older mother, you know, guilting you into being safe and your daughter growing up and still going out and having that great adventure that I think we see male protagonists get to have all the time. So it's very much, you know, I kind of pitched it as lady pirates uh, of the Caribbean meets like, you know, Ocean's Eleven in terms of heist and adventure and stealing. So it's it's been fun. It's it's hard. It's been difficult to kind of peel back into more historical proper uh, fiction and uh, just in terms of the research and in terms of not writing about my my characters that I wrote about for a decade. But it's definitely an, an exciting new world to jump into. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. And I I love that pitch. Ladies, Pirates of the Caribbean meets Ocean's Eleven. That that's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so now now that you've finished one series and are working on the next, I guess you're kind of in this interesting point where, like, how do you decide what you want your brand as a writer, as an author to be? Um, so I guess, like, do you have a brand that you're going for? I don't know. Um, and I don't know that that's something I've really thought a lot about. I, I think I... It has been such a whirlwind for the past few years of going from I'm never going to get this series published to all of a sudden it's the trilogy is done and it's been optioned by Netflix. And I think I'm just been trying to catch up in terms of what that means for my work life and my personal life that it's been a blur and that I haven't really thought as much about the future and branding as maybe I should be. Um I think, you know, the most important thing, especially for me in writing these books and and in finding sort of my voice is I did want them. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Muslim, I'm a, but I'm a convert. And I wanted to write these books and have it, you know, mostly be for other Muslim sci-fi and fantasy nerds who could read it and, and find, you know, just these wonderful little reflections and mirrors of our own world and our religion and our faith as something that would be grand and celebratory and big. Wouldn't it just be, um, you know, I've had a small pet peeve when people have just always been like, oh, you know, the Dave Mott trilogy, that's Middle Eastern fantasy. It's Middle Eastern fantasy. Um, it's not meant to be. It's meant to be this wide Islamic world um, from, you know, East Africa to West Africa to Central Asia to, you know, the Straits and and show just the, the spread of this world. And that was something I wanted to write. So I think if I have any brands, I try to keep myself accountable to that, that that is my community and it's my audience. And I want to put something out that they can enjoy and be proud of and, and kind of has that heart and doesn't lose that. Um, there's ways to examine uh, different nuances of what it means to be a Muslim, what it meant in you know the 12th century, what it means today, what it means in all different aspects. And I really just wanted to kind of look at that. And anybody else who you know, of course, everybody else is welcome to read them as well. But I think if I can if I can keep sort of that heart and sort of stay on that that path of trying to keep that my first focus, I would like that to be my brand. That sounds like an excellent brand. Thank you. <laughs> well, so I guess sort of last question about these things. Since you were able to spend so long, so much time world building and creating the first draft of City of Brass before you ever even had the pressure of publication, how has your experience been different starting this new series? Because I imagine you have publisher and audience expectations to manage. Um, I mean, I'm still so early in the process that I haven't really, you know, I, I don't really have necessarily like pressure or expectations yet. Uh, but interestingly enough, the Pirates Project is something I had originally started thinking about when I was querying for an agent. And it's interesting to see how 
different it looks now, now that I have an established audience. Um, it, I was, when I was first writing it, I think I was struggling a bit because I wanted it to be this very like cool Ocean's Eleven-esque aspect where, you know, these people are sophisticated and, and aloof. And I got into it and I was like, that's not who I am as a writer. <laughs> like, you know, where let's, let's see some, some messiness and some nuance and they're, their his, their backgrounds and their families and their arguing siblings and I wanted to kind of go back to that and see if I could find you know some some heart underneath all this so I think it's it's just looking at okay what did people like about the David Bad trilogy or what did do I think I'm good at as a writer and and now that I have time to kind of breathe and think about that and seeing ways that I can expand on that in my next trilogy not in a way that necessarily limits me but in sort of wh- where can I find inspiration in what people haven't enjoyed and what I've enjoyed doing and what I think was done particularly well. Yeah, well, I think I speak for a lot of your fans when I say uh, I'm very much looking forward to this series. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, so uh, I'm also curious, are there just any books that you've enjoyed lately and you'd recommend? Yes. Um, there, I mean, <laughs> I tried to whittle down the list, <laughs> but there are two coming out, uh, in, in July. So I think people would enjoy them that I, that I really liked. I got to read early, uh, girl serpent thorn by Melissa Bashardust, which is sort of like a, um, pre-Islamic Persian kind of fairy tale-esque story. And I loved the world. It takes place. It's, you know, it's not your typical princess tale. It, you know, it's kind of like, well, what if she is the villain? And it just ambition, it, it, examines ambition and desire in a way for for young female characters that we often don't get to see them have and i just absolutely loved it um another one coming out this in july is the year of the witching by alexis henderson uh, which i recommend but it also scared me to death (laughs) um it's very it's like it felt like it felt like the handmaid's tale meets the witch um and it's just extremely atmospheric and creepy but it's it's very powerful. It just examines the idea of, you know, religion and women's supposed place and power and race. And it's it's very good. It's it's like it's coming out in July and I think you should pick it up in July. But I also like I'm going to do a plug for it in the fall because it is just the absolutely best Halloween book I've read in years. Um, and it's 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 it truly freaks me out. I mean, I, I don't I don't scare in books easily, but this one I was just like, oh, <laughs> that's gonna be in a nightmare later. Yeah, both of those sound so intriguing. I'll definitely have to give those a try. Okay, so a question I always like to close out with, and it's increasingly felt like kind of poor timing to put it mildly but what's something that you're just really excited about right now I know I saw this I was like I don't know (laughs) maybe my daughter eventually going back to school um no I think it's I I listen we're I mean we're talking we're having this conversation on uh, June 9th and right now what's going on with the United States and the Black Lives Matter protests and it has a huge moment of our country and all I I'm excited by that. I mean, it's that same thing of, you know, trying to fight for justice when, you know, you look at these things, you're like, ah, we have, you know, this corrupt despot as, as our president, or, you know, I don't even think you can say president at this point. And, you know, this ruling class that's entrenched and is suppressing our votes. And it's difficult to see past that. But I, I feel like there's also a momentum in this country of, you know, we've been 
beaten down by disease and corruption and racism and white supremacy? And is are we having a moment where, you know, more and more people are getting it and we're going to see real change? And it's, I don't imagine it's going to be easy or quick or fast, but just seeing it, just seeing a rise of more people understanding and finding ways to change this in their lives. I, I, I hope we can see some movement from that. I, I hope we're as much as we're in sort of a very poor, low place in our souls as a world and as a country, I guess I'm excited by the fact that sometimes you have to hit bottom before you find new ways of living and governing. And we'll see. Yeah, I, I sincerely hope that we can take something positive, some lasting change for the better out of all of this. Yeah. Shannon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this has been such a treat. And I know it's already out in the UK, but I can't wait for The Empire of Gold to be released for the rest of the world. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for everyone who's listening. And I hope you enjoy the books. You can find S.A. Chakraborty on Twitter and Instagram as S.A. Chakra Books or at our website, sachakraborty.com. The David Bod Trilogy is a powerful series about faith, family, power, and identity. Where some might call it historical fan fiction, others call it emotionally devastating and beautiful and... Read it, maybe? As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We're almost at the milestone where we can release our first bonus episode. And of course... Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's it for this week. Until next time.